I have heard some people talk today about how we don't necessarily think about our own transitions or energy transition in the same way that we do about the other things that we share and trade. And yet we are all in this together. And so we're going to have to make sure that everybody has access to energy. And it's of concern to me that that some countries think that ambition is purely about speeding up your own transition. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we are very pleased to welcome Kay Harrison, New Zealand's Climate Ambassador, to the program. Kay was appointed to her position in 2019 and has navigated the COP26 meetings where New Zealand updated its NDC and announced increased climate finance, signaling an updated commitment to climate action. She joined my colleague, Joseph Micah, to discuss her role in advancing New Zealand's national and regional actions to move on climate. They talk further about New Zealand's national commitment to net zero and how it's being integrated across the country. Lastly, Kay and Joseph look back at COP26 and whether there has been progress on the initiatives and commitments coming out of those meetings. And they look ahead to COP27 in Egypt this fall and what needs to happen there to keep up the momentum. Here's Joseph to lead the discussion. Ambassador Harrison, welcome to the CSIS podcast. I'm really grateful that you're joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I think people sometimes underestimate how important New Zealand has been to international climate negotiation. New Zealand played a huge role in in forming the model that eventually led to the Paris Agreement. And then last fall, we had the conference at Glasgow, and in my opinion, really cemented some of the best parts of, of the Paris Agreement. And really gave us a vision that climate diplomacy, at least in this stage, had worked. A lot has happened in the meantime, but I think a good place to start our conversation is, what was your view, leaving Glasgow, of how international climate diplomacy has been working? And what are the biggest successes and the remaining challenges ahead of us? Well, well, thanks. I'd like to start with what I felt going into Glasgow, which was trepidation, really, We were looking pretty bad in terms of aggregate ambition. From our point of view, 1.5 degrees is the goal. And yet the contributions of countries weren't adding up anywhere near to keeping us within that limit. So that was the first thing that was looking really bad going into Glasgow. The second thing was that was looking pretty bad too was the developed country commitment to mobilizing 100 billion US dollars per annum by 2020. And we were falling short. And we'd also been struggling to complete the rules that go with the Paris Agreement. So it wasn't looking great going in. It was pretty terrifying. But in fact, considerable hard work you know, and principally by the United Kingdom as presidency, but by colleagues of mine all around the world, delivered a number of things. We delivered a much closer set of ambition targets towards the 1.5 degrees. We got closer to 100 billion. We finished the rule book. But we also took things further as a result of the science. Um, And that's where I think the Paris Agreement shows that it's flexible and dynamic. When we were in Paris in 2015, there's no way we would have included um, reform of fossil fuel subsidies or phase down of coal. And yet, seven years on, they are there in the Glasgow Pact. 
So we have built on the science, we've built on the agreement, we've been dynamic and responsive. We haven't thrown it out and said it didn't work. We've learned and adjusted. And so that's a very, very good sign for multilateralism and the work we did in Glasgow. So let me ask you as a seasoned climate diplomat, from an external view, I'm never quite sure how much the negotiations at a particular COP matter, right? Can you help us understand when you go into a meeting like Glasgow, when the delegates are actually working through some of these challenges, when there are side conversations going on, how much does the two weeks spent in a conference of the parties really affect the outcome? And in your experience, what are the dynamics of those conversations? Mm, Well, it is choreographed to some extent. You have to build throughout the year. You have to maintain pressure on on the uh, and determination to to deliver the things that are most important, and that's what we did. Then, when you get into the, the, those two weeks, there will be a number of things that make a difference. In Glasgow, the the attendance of numerous world leaders, the absolute determination that they expressed was really important when things were coming to a head in the last couple of days. China and the US announced their agreement. And it was almost like you could sort of visibly see people go, oh, okay, well, if they've decided that, well, we're not going to try and flog that dead horse. Once we heard China and and the US coming out with their agreement, we realized that the direction was set in a very constructive way. And that enabled us, I think, to conclude in Glasgow. But yeah, it's, it's not easy, but that's the process. So when I look at the outcomes of Glasgow, right, one of the things that really stands out to me is this assessment by the International Energy Agency that if all of the ambitions that were pledged at Glasgow, right, and we, we should be careful to distinguish between sort of formal pledges and ambitious pledges, intentions, if you will, but but if all the the highest ambitions stated in around Glasgow by countries around the world are met or if they're achieved, then the IEA sees temperature warming over this century reaching 1.8 degrees centigrade. Obviously, that's an uncertain estimate, but it also 10 years ago would have been unthinkable, and maybe even at the time of the Paris Agreement, unthinkable that that would be the outcome of of a negotiation that the the first bar of the Paris Agreement, keeping global warming under two degrees C, would be met, at least in an ambitious sense. So do you see that as a significant outcome? And what now do the countries have to do to make sure that they realize the best of their intentions? It was an incredibly important moment when the IEA came out with that number during Glasgow, because what it did was it said, Parties, you're not on the path to failure. There is hope. You can do this. And that's incredibly important and something as as challenging as the fight against climate change. But, of course, we didn't deliver it. We just committed to delivering it. And uh, one of the contributing factors was the Global Methane Pledge, which is also really important in getting us there. But I'm really pleased to say that now, all around the world, people are turning their attention to implementation, action, and accountability. And so people are saying, so what can the COP27 do to deliver on the accountability of parties beyond what's technically designed in the Paris Agreement, the Enhanced Transparency Framework, but saying, come on, folks, your your leaders showed up in Glasgow and and." you know, high-fived each other over all sorts of coalitions and initiatives and plans. 
So, you know, what have you done? How have you made good on that? And uh, there's an increasing call for that kind of accountability, not just the accountability that's formally designed in the Paris Agreement. But it's time now really to turn our attention not to more and more of these negotiations and target setting and initiatives, but in terms of, of COPs, they're not going to be the, those kind of events anymore. They, they should be places where are hearing about success stories and implementation and some of the how-tos um, are, are pretty exciting. So we had the Just Energy Transition partnerships being one being announced uh, with South Africa in Glasgow we need to be hearing more about those um, we need to hear more situations where countries have got around the table and said okay how do we do this together and how do we deliver it particularly for major emitters but not only in, in emissions reductions also in adaptation you know we've got countries in the Pacific who've got costed adaptation plans they need some people to get around the table with them and say okay how much do you need and and how quickly can we do this together and that's what we need to be seeing now new initiatives are, are still valid if you take fossil fuel subsidy reform for example how do we operationalize the fact that everyone has said that they are going to review and reform and remove inefficient fossil fuel subsidies and so what does that look like when you operationalize that on a global scale? So there's room for further initiatives, but it's all got to be about implementation and action and accountability now. Well, I'd like to hear about that from a New Zealand context, if you if you can share. I mean, on the US side, we have, I would say, implementation and accountability challenges <laughs> regarding RNDC. But by contrast, New Zealand has net zero as a matter of law. Like, so from the perspective of your home country, how do you see the evolution of ambition turning into action? And what lessons do you think are most important for peer nations as well as larger economies such as the US or developing and middle income countries? Well, I actually think the most valuable thing we have in New Zealand is this very strong sense that climate action is like an education system or a health system. It's something we all believe we need to have and our political parties can debate exactly how we deliver them, but not whether we will deliver them. And that is a precious and hard-won asset but it's also, I think, it can be fragile, and that's because what we're endeavouring to do is such a major transition and transformation of our economy and our lifestyles that there are inevitable distributional effects and there will be people who suffer. And unless we attend to them very, very conscientiously, uh, we may lose the ability to undertake the change that we desperately need. So first and foremost for New Zealand, it's that strong sense of, yes, we know we're going to do this and we are going to look after one another in the context of doing it. But yes, having it in law, having 1.5 degrees in law is, is a critical piece of architecture. As well as that, we established a, a climate change commission, expert and independent, basically to tell our politicians what we need to do, which is helpful. And by law, the politicians must set emissions budgets for five-year periods. So we have 15 years of budgets to live within. And by law, the government must have a plan to meet those emissions reductions that will get us to net zero. 
This has to be supported, of course, by support for research and development and innovation. It has to be supported with specific community assistance and all of those those layers and layers and layers of regulation and budget support, etc. And so there's a lot to build. And the thing that worries me, I guess, about other countries is where they haven't started building those things and they do take some time to bed in. You know, an emissions trading system, for example, which you've got a fantastic example of in the US and California, that takes a long time to build um, and it needs to be adjusted and adapted because we find out the things that work and don't work in it. But putting a price on carbon, in our view, as an essential Yeah, you'll find very little argument for me on the need for a price on carbon. I think actually where I really agree is that it takes time to set these systems up, right? It's the textbook says slap a price on carbon, everything is going to be fine. And it's very clear, even in the places where a price on carbon is a big piece of the policy portfolio, it can take a decade or more to really get a system up and running through any sort of political system. And actually working to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is, you know, a principal target of such a policy. Yeah. You have to remember that we've been learning while doing. And when we set out to to build our emissions training scheme back and and we started in 2008, it was a different world. It was a world in which we thought that if developed countries just reduced their emissions, we wouldn't have a problem. It's since then that we have understood the science telling us that, in fact, this is a transformation that every economy in the world needs to make. And it's not about simply developed countries reducing their emissions to a certain extent. So what started out as um, potentially an effective idea has become insufficient and we have to adapt. But I agree with you and it is a concern. It takes a long time to build one of those mechanisms. And so we don't, and we don't have a long time, frankly. We've got to do the heavy lifting between now and 2030 and that's eight years. And so we should be seeing dramatic transformation in every country of the world. And what I say to the people in my Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when they go to be ambassadors in, in countries around the world and they say, oh, well, look, I'm not an expert on climate change. And I say, well, you don't need to be because if the country you're going to is doing what it says it's going to do, and if it's doing what it needs to do by 2030, then you will see and experience and feel dramatic changes in your daily life, in every sector of your life. And that's what we need to be seeing by 2030. You've left me with a lot of questions. So you started your your last response with a need to be more attentive to the distributional impacts of energy transition the potential displacements like particular communities may feel or particular ways of life. How is that applied in New Zealand? How are those conversations realized on the ground, so to say? Well, one of the things that those of us in New Zealand who are probably, I guess, over 40, remember, is a very extensive transition in our economy in the 1980s. And that left a lot of families and communities battered and bruised. And so I guess we're very mindful of the fact that good ideas, and it's arguable whether they were good ideas, but even good ideas pushed through without consideration for 
human beings will be damaging and ultimately may well be rejected. We've got a big issue, for example, with transport emissions, but we have a very long and skinny country and we don't have an enormous population. So mass transit is difficult to make feasible and viable. And we have really old cars and New Zealanders kind of might only pay a thousand dollars for a car if, if they can get away with it. And yet we also know that families who have maybe three low paying jobs and children to ferry to and from school need their cars because uh, it's possible that public transport is just not going to work for them. So one of the things the government has announced in the recent budget is a scheme to scrap those cars, those gas government cars, and enable vulnerable families to shift to zero emissions vehicles. And we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to make them decisions around these things fit for purpose and fit for the community's concerns. So that's just one example. But equally, we've got a large rural community and, and 50% of our emissions come from the agriculture sector. And that's how we make our living as a country. And it's how many communities identify themselves. So we need to work with that community and we're doing so in a collaborative way to identify how those emissions will be addressed and priced indeed. And that's not an easy conversation, but it's a conversation we need to have together. Those are just two examples. No, those are really helpful. I mean, we kind of carbon pricing or or even more vigorous mitigation efforts, for instance, in the agricultural community are considered a bit of a third rail here in the US. And I, I think that that's true over a, a lot of the world. The emission sources are more diffuse. They're oftentimes small firms or family-owned farms. And the politics of it just are remarkably different and probably very tricky to wade through wherever you are in the world. Yeah. We don't, we don't have enormous industries chugging out greenhouse gases. We have you know, one steel mill and, and one aluminium plant and, and one methanol, a methanex plant. And at the same time, you know, the vast majority of our emissions are that cow and that sheep and that car. And you know, people have sometimes hoped that they could identify the top 100 emitters and, and shame them into reducing their emissions. But in fact, it's, as you said, very diffuse. And therefore, this is the time has come for us all to to address our own behavior, whether it's in the way we treat waste or the way we move ourselves around. So we also have talked a little bit about the shift in policy approach that has occurred over the past few years, right? You said, well, it used to be, well, if we just developed countries cut emissions, the problem would be licked. And that was probably when the goal was reducing emissions 80% by 2050. Now the goal is, is net zero. How has net zero changed in your mind the proper ordering of public policy or the priorities that we should be pursuing when we think about decarbonization? Well, I guess the, the challenging thing for every government and every organization has been how do you mainstream climate change? I remember when the current minister of Climate Change in New Zealand first took on his job, I said to him, you're the conductor of the orchestra, but you don't get to play all of the instruments. And one of the things that, that really helped to address that in New Zealand was when the government declared a climate emergency. And for that reason, the Prime Minister herself organises the ministers in a group of, of climate response ministers. 
So when she's looking at her Minister of Housing or her Minister of Transport, they understand that their priority as a transport or a housing minister is in the context of that climate emergency. So they no longer think my most important role is to build more houses or to build more roads, but to do so within the context of the climate emergency that the Prime Minister has declared, the government has declared, and um, that we need to manage together. For many years, I think people thought climate change was some kind of environmental issue alongside plastic pollution or or something like that. Not that those are unimportant issues, but in fact, climate change is a a fundamental change in um, the finance flows, the construction of your economy. Um, For many countries, it's it's about energy, but it's also about nature and in our case about agriculture. So how does that same message translate internationally? One of the things you hear from people who are more cautious about energy transition is, well, we can't stall economic growth in the developing world for the sake of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But what you just said kind of reminded me, well, all the countries of the world, well, with a couple small exceptions, are party to the Paris Agreement. They're party to the, the agreement that implies we're heading toward net zero. And so really the task is, how do we grow economies in a world that's moving toward net zero? Right. How do you, how do you think about relaying that message as we think about this sort of like now blurrier assignment of responsibilities between developed and developing nations? Well, you remind me of a story I heard from an African colleague who who talked about how in his country they had something like eighty five percent of electricity generation was renewable, but only fifteen percent of the population had access to that electricity and upstream some of their neighbors were taking some of the water that they had relied upon for their hydro schemes and then great they just discovered some gas offshore now how on earth could you ask any cabinet any government to ignore that gas to leave it in the ground you know and that's the absolute reality that countries like uh, yours and mine benefited from deforestation, from hydrocarbons, still do. And so that is where the fundamental deal, if you like, in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Paris Agreement must come into play. And that is the relationship between the developed and developing world in terms of climate finance and redirecting those climate finance, uh, those, those finance flows completely in the service of our shared endeavor. So this is a place that you previously highlighted as a challenge going into Glasgow, and it's one that didn't fully get resolved. And I think remains to be a challenge. It's like the developed countries not living up to the promises that they've made regarding climate finance and climate finance pledges not living up to the challenge of delivering sort of investment necessary to see adequate economic growth with minimal greenhouse gas emissions. So after Glasgow, how do you see that conversation evolving? Clearly, governments are not going to be able to provide the trillions of dollars necessary to fully decarbonize the global economy. But the finance plays an important political and I would say pragmatic role in helping to unlock private sector finance for clean energy infrastructure around the world. What do we do about that problem? Yeah, well, lots of different things, I think. One of the things we've done in New Zealand is to legislate for climate-related disclosures in, in, in major firms. We need the private sector to be identifying the climate risks that are present in their own businesses, 
But we also have enormous numbers of companies. And in New Zealand, I think something like more than 60% of our emissions are in the hands of, of firms who have committed to carbon neutrality themselves. So as governments, we need to make sure that there is accountability for those claims as well. And that's where we can see divestment and redirection of finance as, as all players take on the responsibility for carbon neutrality. Because, it's you know, governments can play their part and governments are emitters as well. And they can send the long-term signals around, for example, in New Zealand's case, banning offshore oil and gas exploration. Governments can set regulation and price carbon, et cetera. But in the end, it's in the hands of each of us and in each company to redirect our activities, to to innovate, to choose low-carbon alternatives, et cetera, so, and to compete with one another in doing that. So all of those things are available to us. But when it comes to the developing world, we're going to need to do much more than that. And as you say, public funds are not going to cut it. Nevertheless, you've got many companies that that are operating in the developing world, and they are going to rely on a stable climate and access to water and a safe workforce. So those companies have a very strong motivation and great opportunity to be providing adaptation support within those countries. And that's what we need to see more of, much, much more of. So New Zealand has by geography and history, a close relationship with many of the island nations of the South Pacific. Island nations are, are some of the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And truly, it's an existential risk for pieces, if not the whole of some of, some of those countries. How can we do better coming from a developed world perspective or a safely above predictable sea level rise perspective to aid those countries? Yeah. You said we had a historical connection and a geographical connection, but we also have a cultural and family connection uh, because we are a Pacific nation and our people's Pacific peoples. And so this is not purely a case of, of a developed country that's the neighbour of Pacific Island communities. This is our neighbourhood. This is this is our family. And we're very conscious of the message that the Pacific has given us. And we share in the message that climate change is the single biggest threat to us and to the existence of many of us. And so that is why 1.5 degrees is at the heart of our legislation, even though the Paris Agreement kind of had a sort of a bet each way with two degrees and striving for 1.5, we know that even at less than 1.5, the devastation to communities in the Pacific is enormous. And it horrifies me to hear some developed country leaders talk about, we need to take climate action for our children and our children's children, because certainly in, in our part of the world, it's it's for us, not for our children and our children's children is right now. And if you take one of our close neighbours, Fiji, Fiji has established standard operating procedures for the relocation of communities that have had enough. They know that they can't adapt anymore. They have had disaster after disaster and they say, right, we've got to move. Now, that is an incredible place to be in. Um, we have communities in New Zealand that have had disaster after disaster. 
but I don't think any of them have quite yet put their hands up and said, okay, we've, we've got to move. Because that is an enormous challenge and both psychosocially and, and economically. But this is happening. This is happening in the Pacific. And uh, we feel very strongly that, that we need the rest of the world to be hearing that and, and understanding that and, and delivering. Delivering on adaptation financing. The, the developed world is not only has it, the developed world not delivered the 100 billion, but it, much of it's delivered as concessional loans and, and much of it is tagged to mitigation, which is helpful, of course. But what we've got is. Uh, you know, communities that desperately need adaptation financing and financing for the loss and damage that they're experiencing. What should the United States be doing as a Pacific nation? Well, it's really encouraging that the United States wants to be in the Pacific and and, and supporting communities there. And um, I've got lots of ideas for them um, if they want to join with us and spending some money. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be, it would be very much in, in that adaptation space. And But not only that, we've spent money on fuel switching. But you've got to also remember that the Pacific is an enormous ocean and that shipping is a is a critical issue and we need to be addressing shipping emissions as well. Shipping emissions in the context of communities that absolutely rely on shipping and are not well placed to change their, their mode of transport very easily. So there's work to be done and that's work we can do together. Maybe we can look ahead for a moment because as we record this at the end of May, 2022. We've talked a lot about Glasgow and the world of climate action, but energy markets have been really rocked by Russian invasion of Ukraine, economic response from Europe. And I don't know that the tensions or the market tightness that we're experiencing now are going to be resolved in the next six months or even in the next few years. So our approach to climate has to evolve with present day conditions. What are you hearing from colleagues around the world about how the events of the last few months are making them either rethink or re-strategize around climate action? Well, I've been encouraged to hear from many leaders in Europe, and that's where I am just at the moment, that they're doubling down on their transition to renewable energy. And that is the only response. It's a difficult set of circumstances. And we once again, we need to be sure that we're looking after the people and people facing tremendous increases in prices of, of for energy. Uh, but at the same time, we just cannot move to uh, renewable energy fast enough. And that's when we're going to have energy security. And in one of your previous podcasts, someone talked about the sort of universal access to wind and and the almost universal access to sun. I think somebody questioned whether that was true in Ireland. Hmm. Well, you know, we need that energy security and, and it's great to hear leaders doubling down on it. This is a curveball. So is COVID. The thing that worried me two years ago was that people were going to, to rebuild their economies as rapidly as they could by borrowing from the future, but not spending it on what the future needed, but spending it on the things we'd always spent it on in the past just to get our economies going. So, you know, next year, 
probably another curveball. But the good thing is that we have got clearly front and center the climate crisis is is there and is not being shelved or forgotten or put aside because we understand unequivocally now the science and and the necessity around um, this critical decade in 2030. So as we look forward to COP27, Shamar Lashek in Egypt, what's the conversation going to be? What what should we be looking forward to? What should we be prepared for? And what makes this next COP a success or a missed opportunity? Well, I think the first thing is we, we do need to start adjusting our expectations about what COPs will deliver because COPs have delivered a global agreement on climate change. They have delivered a rule book. And now they're going to be delivering things that maybe aren't quite as kind of earth shattering in some respects. And we've set ourselves some agendas around a mitigation work program, around talking about adaptation. What does effective adaptation look like as a goal? We need to talk about the funding for loss and damage, which is a difficult one for negotiators. And we need to be thinking about finance in a much more effective and long-term way. At the same time, we need to see some people making good on what they committed to the developed world in terms of the 100 billion, but also each of us in terms of the things that we signed up to in Glasgow. So what has happened since we signed up to the Global Methane Pledge or Beyond Oil and Gas or or any of those other initiatives? And how do we operationalize the things that we said we would do, like coal phase down and and the removal of fossil fuel subsidies? We need to be showing really practical implementation going on. And that might not get the headlines in the way that setting targets did or or other such things, but success will be hard work, hard work focused on accountability, ambition, and action. Any risk factors that you can see from this far ahead toward the practical conversation that you just described? Always. (laughs) Always. <laughs> and and that's because, you know, what you've got here is a bunch of human beings and human beings can sometimes behave badly or they can sometimes not maybe behave as well as they need to. And one of the most important things is going to be trust. And, you know, we did well in Glasgow. We each of us went out of our comfort zone to some extent. But I think probably more than ever, we understand that we're in this together. But we need to show that. We need to show that through the the delivery of finance in particular. The delivery of reporting, (laughs) countries have have, have committed to that. The delivery of capacity building and as well as that unshakable commitment to the implementation in each of our own countries with help from one another. You know, CSIS is a non-governmental organization, and our program in energy security and climate change is charged with doing research that will help us achieve an energy transition that is responsive to the risks of climate change, but works out in the strategic and economic interests of the United States and our allies and then the world. What should we be working on? How much does effective decarbonization fit into countries' international strategies now? Earlier, we were talking about the decarbonization imperative now just being part of the scene, right? If you're the housing minister of New Zealand, your target is building as many houses as possible. Decarbonization is one of the imperatives. You think about economic development. Well, now the world faces the challenge of economic development with decarbonization as one of the imperatives. We think about building a set of strategies that's going to create a more peaceful and prosperous world. We want to do that with decarbonization. So for a US-based think tank, Who's, it's our job to come up with the next set of ideas. 
Where do you think the big challenges lie? Everywhere. <laughs> I have heard some people talk today about how we're not, we don't necessarily think about our own transitions or energy transition in the same way that we do about the other things that we share and trade. And yet we are all in this together. And so we're going to have to make sure that everybody has access to energy and not every country has the same access to the same opportunities with respect to energy. So how do we ensure that energy is, is shared or traded? Mm-hmm. Equally, you know, you can attend to your own transition. And well, that's quite self-serving. But in fact, what we need is everybody's transition. And we're going to have no one to trade with. And we're going to have people knocking on our door if in fact their transition hasn't been effective as well. So one of the things that we need to do is enhance our ambition in other countries, not only in our own. And that's what Article 6 in the Paris Agreement envisaged. And it's of concern to me that that some countries think that ambition is purely about speeding up your own transition. And for the developed world, that cannot be the case. They must express ambition through supporting others. Um, so that's much more than climate finance. And, and it's certainly something that New Zealand will do. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. That was really compelling. Thank you. Thanks to Kay for joining Energy 360 and for sharing all the work that New Zealand is doing to advance climate change action. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening.